Welcome to episode 82 of The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests on this episode are Allie Peoples and Cara Levine. Allie Peoples is an artist and filmmaker living in Los Angeles. She's inspired by pedestrian histories, pop song lyrics, and is invested in The Handmade. Allie has a film screening on February 22nd uh, at the New Work Salon at Echo Park Film Center right here in LA, so you should check that out. The props that I make in the film and just camera moves that I do, I'm like, I want it to be very crude and obvious and I want you to know what those materials are. I want the smoke and mirrors to be really obvious. Cara Levine is an artist living in Los Angeles. She works in sculpture, video, and socially engaged practices. She has worked in the group show Message to Space in the inaugural opening of Super Collider, a new science-inspired exhibition platform at the Beacon Building here in L.A. And also, she and Allie have a two-person show coming up in April at Elephant Art Space here in the Cypress Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. So you should definitely check that yeah, out. Yeah, look up Elephant. Go there. I wanted to, like, undermine my perfectionism as a maker, and I wanted to really wanted to teach my hands to see because also I'm fascinated by, like, perception and sensitivity and sensorial experience and... It's our hands, like, that really are our second eyes. And at the end of the show, we're going to go out with a track from friend of the show, Nick Flessa, his new project called Dayton Swim Club. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. Alley Peoples and Carla Vine, welcome to The People. Yeah, Welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. The show. So the two of you have a collaborative show at Elephant Art Space mm-hmm. in April. Yes. Tell us about that show. So Allie and I have a show coming up in April at Elephant Art Space. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically about how each of us in our studios are trying to reconcile impossible truths that we're living with right now um, with the 24-hour news cycle and social media and I think also just like an over tidal wave of information and tragedy be it subtle ambiguous um, or like a phrase I like to use is this idea of ambient grief where we're kind of all swimming together in this knowledge of climate change and grave change among us, but how do we take this in as artists, slow down and make work to address these things that is still playful and warm and accessible. But I think that's some of the questions that we're working on in our studios. Mm -hmm. I feel like you more directly deal with them because your textile pieces are photo based, Mm -hmm. pulled from media. Yeah. And you can describe them, your emotional response that you have to them a little better than I can. Yeah. Whereas, but my work, I feel like, while I do have those sentiments and feelings with engaging with media and reconciling yeah. that with our ethics, um, my work that I think I'm going to show in the in the elephant show is in in that world more like escapism. It's more like fantasy based. Totally. Yeah. It's sort of our different ways of responding to similar issues amongst us. And I think what's exciting about your work is you've developed this whole system of symbols um, that I think play into escapism and magic and this way that you are um, using fantasy and illusion to 
create a different kind of reality. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I like that you said symbols because um, a lot of my work leading up to this was way more like graphic design based and like trying to take apart language and recognizable daily things that Mm -hmm. we encounter and like trying to explode them or like unpack them or veil them and try and uh, like cognitively like what, what, how much of a word do we need to, in order to like make that mental leap with it. Um, So I've always worked with language and symbols um, but these paintings and drawings are, um, yes, there's symbols in them, but they're way more like illustrative and I hadn't painted in like years, by the right, way, right. before making this. So that these paintings and this new work seems like from the left field or like a U-turn, but they, they of course do relate to my earlier sculpture work and graphic design based work. And Ali, you work mainly with film. Um, I do all sorts of stuff with uh, sculpture, screen printing, uh, studio-based work. Not a lot of not a lot of performance. Sure. And then, but yeah, then I do have this whole other practice of sixteen millimeter and super eight yeah. filmmaking. That is on the surface, it seems very removed, but they do relate in that. Um, I'm super interested in drawn to material, like handmade material. And so 16 millimeter and super eight films, I can like touch the film and. If you're taking an approach to what Cara was talking about, of like uh, dealing with the situation that we all find ourselves in, in America, at least right now, if you're approaching it from an escapist or using escapist strategies to explore how to get through that, how do you, I guess what I'm wondering is how do you do that without getting too escapist or is that even a legit question? So I'll just say that like these paintings are depictions of something being reflected, which I was doing in my moving image film work. And you're not sure what the real thing is. Like there's a mirroring going on and the perspective has to be pretty like lined up because they're very simple in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, and Kara, you're not... From looking at your work, it feels like you're also trying to get at an aesthetic truth. Mm-hmm. Is that would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that for both of well, I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but um, I think it's less like, hey, I'm gonna try to deal with all of these traumas that we're living in right now by burrowing into a hole in my studio and working on these artworks. It's more like this is my actual response and this is how I am committing my time and these are the pieces that I'm making and I think in a, and inherently we're making them in this context and so in some ways it's always responding to that um, but one thing that I just wanted to piggyback on is this use of language like I think language for me kind of launched the body of work that I'm going to be putting in to um, our exhibition and language is a through line in your work. Um, and even if it's not always there, like in these paintings, you can read them visually kind of poetically, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, like they have a kind of inherent secret narrative that you can read into them. So the, the body of work that I'm putting in I'm, is called Fear is a Liar. 
and it's multi-dimensional like there's video work there's textile work there's drawings there's all different kinds of pieces of work but it's all under this umbrella fear is a liar and that language came from me commuting to work one morning and I was like stuck behind this Penske truck that was this big yellow truck and it was totally painted over in Penske yellow which was wild it was like there was no any other other markings on it except for in the very back of the truck like on the pull down gate were sticker stencil letters that said fear is a liar and I was like what the fuck is happening (laughs) and I trailed behind this truck for like you know, 20 minutes or something, like a chunk of my commute. And I felt like I was in a tunnel with this truck. And I'm a meditator, and uh, there's this idea in meditation where if you use a mantra for 10 days consecutively, like theoretically, you should start to – change should happen in your body. Like you should – you should – it should imbue your behavior and your experience. And so I was thinking – while I was watching this truck, it was like during the Kavanaugh hearings and also the immigration children are being separated and like the world is ending in a number of different ways. And I'm like, fear is so real and fear is so truth telling. Like fear is so necessary. Fear is like a bodily reaction that we live by that is determinant of so much of our behavior. Like I don't think fear is a liar. Like I think the idea of fear is a liar is supposed to be this concept of like, you can will yourself to be brave and fear isn't real and fear is tricking you and it's all made up. And so I'm just like watching this being like, well, will I be more empowered if I don't believe in fear and fear isn't real? I'm just like going through this whole kind of existential crisis with this text. It's so complicated. It's just on the back of this truck. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, gosh, like, does anybody else see this? You know? <laughs> so <laughs> I took a bunch of pictures of it and I took it back to my studio and one of the first things I did was I wrote the phrase fear is a liar on these big pieces of paper, one a day, um, repeated for 10 days in that action of like trying to repeat it for 10 days. And then I also went back to the first image and it, um, sewed a kind of large scale, like four by five feet, foot textile where I'm like picking and choosing the parts of this image that were so important to me and re <clears throat> re um, kind of reordering it and and portraying it as like a hand-sewn object. So it's like kind of slowing down and trying to meditate in a way on this concept more and more. And then it's kind of bled into further other language explorations and other site-specific um, kind of works. But So at yeah. that point, after 10 days, is, is fear a liar? <laughs> yeah, I need more. Well, and what you were saying, saying about like um i forget what but just the fear is a liar but but don't because you can't let fear at this point in the you can't be cynical you can't be apathetic like right so if you're afraid of shit in this time like yeah it feels like a really complicated phrase it's like no you you can't be did you say you can't be empathetic you can't be um apathetic yeah thank you yeah yeah right you can't be apathetic, but like our fear reaction is being triggered so often, right? like in so many ways, like just driving alone, you know, like you're in, you have to be so alert and like, and then on the news and in relationships and like fear is like so ever present. 
Well, I know you've done a few projects where you like write people or call people or introduce yourself to people. Right. And I, as a very shy person, I'm like, I need to pay attention to that. Oh, yeah. You wrote Adrian Piper. I wrote Adrian Piper. Um, I actually sent Adrian Piper a 45-minute video um, of myself speaking to one of her pieces, asking her to sit with me. Um, when she never wrote me back. But right. in graduate school, I will say, to my credit, was not that was not a cold call. There have been many cold calls, but she and I had a correspondence for about a year, and it was really impactful for me. She's one of my art heroes, and I wrote her as a student, like t- from the perspective of like, uh, um, you are my art hero, and I'm seeking counsel from you. And she was so gracious and um, and gave me great counsel. During that time, but she never responded to my video. Oh, <laughs> but the piece you responded to was repetitive and meditative. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and I also once wrote thirty-five letters to an artist who just turned a hundred, named Pierre Solage, who's a painter. Because um, I was interested in darkness, I was exploring darkness in my work a lot, and he spent seventy years painting abstract expressionist paintings in black. Um, and also, he never wrote back. But this he, guy knows about darkness. He knows. I was like, <laughs> you know a lot about darkness. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a there's definitely like an interest in my work in like um, following a, a problem um, and trying to address it at different angles until I understand it better. Like the labor that I put into the work is a part of the work itself, which I think is true for a lot of artists. Right. Um, and actually, I think it's probably indicative of your filmmaking method, you know, like your the way that you um, the way that you structure and shoot and then edit your films seems really process dependent and both intentional, highly intentional and also spon- has room for spontaneity. Yeah. Um, I don't want that to be on the surface, though, you know, what do you mean? Well, I was thinking about because a lot of your performance base work or even your carvings, the, I think the um, the process and the journey of it is the destination right, that's for true. you. Right. Yeah. But your work, it's like, here's the piece and the process is like a part of it, but it's not forefronted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think anything that you make by hand takes time. Isn't there an element of not arriving in some of your work that I've seen? Someone landing or almost landing but never landing? Oh, yeah, Tell yeah. me the piece that I'm That's thinking That's an older of. piece. Um, I don't know. That was just me fucking with, like, rhythm and repetition. And, well, that that's a great, um, like, film uh, technique or something where, like, you just – you cut – in before the middle the of the happens. before they hit the ground and they're like suspended in air if you repeat it over right. like 10 times mm-hmm. yeah yeah well when Kara said not like the phrase not arriving that reminded me of got it of yeah literally piece. not yeah. arriving on the ground of like that of the specific import of the moment like never actually happening mm-hmm. but that is also happening in these paintings in some way too like there's a, a mystery in each of them there's no figures in them and there's in these paintings of yours, mm-hmm. there's no, um, you know, there's like the, it, what appears to have been, um, like a trace of a person, like with the candles, for example, like those candles were lit by somebody, right. but there's no somebody there and the candles are sort of floating. Yeah. Um, so there is kind of 
I haven't really ever thought about it that way, but that kind of not arriving it seems sort of relevant. Yeah. There's a bunch of motion going on too. Like mm-hmm. there's objects that are like about to touch each other mm-hmm. or are flying through the air. And so like direction is like implied. Um, and the titles are pretty, for someone who's like always hated like titling artworks, like these paintings have like really long sentence narrative titles yeah. that like imply a ton of um, narrative to them. I love titles like that. Good. <laughs> you are listening to The People on K Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find The People every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on K Chung, 1630 AM, and or wherever you find your podcasts. Everywhere. Yeah. All the Go places. To Apple, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or SoundCloud or... Any of that stuff. All Just those things. Search for The People Radio and find us there. And you can also find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. And you can find information about all of our episodes there. And you can find us on SoundCloud. Oh, you can also find us on insertblancpress.net. Oh, yeah. By clicking on The People there. at the top of the page. And that's got all, all the stuff. episodes. You can find us everywhere. Yeah, so come and around and see us sometime. Exactly. And now back to our conversation with Allie Peoples and Carla Vine. Allie, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your recent time you spent in Alaska. So I just did um, a residency called Chulitna Lodge, and it is on Lake Clark in South Central Alaska um, by Bush Plain. It's an hour west of Anchorage. Oh, yeah, Bush Plain, sure. Yeah, Bush <laughs> Plain. So Alaska is massive and huge, and there aren't roads anywhere, and... A lot of people own planes or no pilots or are a pilot, um, small, uh, single engine or double engine, um, planes are very common there. And that's just how people get around. And there's a very small residency there on Lake Clark and they have funding and they operate between, I'm going to say May, uh, through mid October. But I was there for six weeks, and it was really crazy to go somewhere so remote. Like, I really felt like I was looking down the barrel, and, like, I'm checked out. Like, I dove in. Hmm. And um, it was really great, but also really difficult. Well, how did they they set you up with, like, a place to live, obviously? Yeah, so everyone gets a cabin that can also double as your studio, but you are free to carve out other studio space. Um, They're nice cabins, but Spartan in some ways. And then there's a large lodge where they provide meals. So there's a chef or two there cooking meals for you. Um, And at any given time, there's four to six uh, artists in residence, along with, I'll say, six staff members that are just taking care of the property, the buildings, um, laundry, making sure you have the tools you need, taking care of the generator and the right. um, solar panels. Is it off the grid then? It's off the generator grid. Yeah. It is generator run, so they're toggling back and forth between diesel run Right. A generator and that then feeds a battery uh, and then solar. Right. But when I was there, it was overcast at least half the time. So the solar was 
was not kicking in, but I that is running. And they do have um, like a hydro power thing that they're going to install in the creek. Which well, will be how do you how do you make work there? How do you make work there? And what kind of work did you make? Uh, very portable. I took watercolors mm-hmm. and I took a borrowed laptop to work on a soundtrack. Right. Yeah. I didn't want to haul things. I didn't want to ship things. You had to bring all your own materials. Yeah. And I all took your own tools. a book. Like they, they have a library, but I took the milepost book to help me get around afterwards. Um, and it was isolating. It was super isolating. So they, but they do have internet, but it is like slow. Mm-hmm. And I'll just honestly, like there were times where I was like, I would rather not even have the idea of the internet. Sure. Um, no phone service. Um, so yeah, it was just really difficult to be like that isolated, but surrounded by really intense, untouched beauty and nature. Um, and May to October was not terribly cold, or it was not terribly cold. It was so very sunny. I feel like or I timed light. it like just right because I love fall. Um, salmon season is. I'm a little confused by this, but the salmon run I think happened in July. So salmon are like spawning right out their front door, which is amazing. So then they just have this stock supply of salmon for you to enjoy and eat. Um, but yeah, as soon as I showed up, the leaves were turning and then at the tail end, there was snow on the mountains. I think what everyone who lives in a big metropolitan area imagines that they want to do at all moments, mm-hmm. right? Especially like to go to one of those places and be provided with a space to make work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that the case or was it so isolating that it was hard to operate? No, it was super luxurious in that like... Like, it's kind of disgusting. Like, you wake up, you go have breakfast, and, like, it's unstructured time, so I would read and then go into the cabin and, like, paint or think for six hours. Yeah. Um, within that time, like, I would walk to the river, that's a 20-minute walk, or walk to the marsh, that's a 20-minute, like, you can go zone out in nature and then come back. I did really stick to a structure just to help me, so then I would, like, stretch before dinner like I knew that they blow a conch shell for dinner at seven Wow! so I knew that was coming and then you have dinner with everyone like a communal dinner mm-hmm. and then um part of the deal is uh you're on dish duty there's a lot of fucking dishes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many dishes Good thing they only like, have four to six residents no it's a lot of dishes like but I got into it and then um yeah, I don't know, but only being able to like walk 20 minutes in either direction before yeah. you encounter a body of water or a like debilitating mountain was tough and my dad was like, "Hope you're finding your way around, like sending you some money to spend." I'm like, "There's no around There's around." No, like yeah. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah, it's an interesting conceit, I think, this idea that as artists living in a city, this kind of fantasy to go to a rural or secluded, isolated place and think that suddenly, in a way, that will free us up creatively. Sort of this romantic vision. And in some ways, it possibly could and inspire a lot of 
new thoughts and different thoughts and make space for different kind of growth as an artist and also just give you plain old time, like right. time that you did not have in it's your so nice. regular hustle. I right, will that's say that's the main cell, right? Is that's the, the main yeah. cell. Extra time. Having your meals made for you is a huge, is a huge yeah. help. Like I spend so much time, you know, buying and making meals. Totally. Like just having that taken care of was was amazing. Tell us the both of you, because I know you're both residency type artists. Uh, how do you reconcile that with the buying of food when you're home, like and making a living and surviving financially? Mm-hmm. How do you figure that out? I'm a super freak and like make a lot of meals and I don't know what, like I do enjoy eating out, but I just want to be in control of what I eat and feel good. Me too. I cook basically all my meals and I'll buy for the week and prepare. And then for me, it's like the measure that I'm, that's hardest for me to, to gain control of is my time, the unobstructed time in the studio, like in city life. In daily life when I'm working and teaching and um, have my dog and have laundry and food and expenses and all the things, like the studio time, no matter how much you space it out, doesn't feel expansive in the same way as unobstructed residency time. Mm-hmm. It's like such a gift. And I also like make it really structured when I do have an opportunity to be on residency because it's like this is such an indulgence and it's like I'm so lucky to have this time I'm just gonna use the shit out of it for work yeah um, but it's I think to answer your question it's just such a balance that we're all trying to figure out how do we manage our time and our expenses and putting our body in the specific place that it needs to be in at that time in LA yeah right because it's not just having the unstructured studio time it's not being so exhausted that you want to lay down and die yeah and that, that you should time like arrives. it's like yeah be great like we deserve to go to work and come home and like brain drain it's a crazy expectation that we have of each other of ourselves to go home go to work and then go to work again mm-hmm. right you it's know? a second job yeah for sure yeah right? it's a first job yeah, like that's true. and then all of our jobs <laughs> for money great. are a second job. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think. And cooking for me at home is a, such a reset, like m- way more than exercise. Yeah, I, like I have to go home and cook because if I don't, I'll feel like I'm out of control. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but if I like buy two lunches out in a row, I feel very chaotic, and I do not like that. It's not that I can't afford it. Yeah. I also learned something when I was really young. When I was 18, I worked for an artist for a year. um, And uh, we always took breaks for lunch. She was the first artist I ever worked for, and she was Spanish. And we always had a significant, like, lunch break. That was Mm -hmm. some time. And multiple things happened on the lunch break. Like, you would have lunch. Maybe you would tidy up. Maybe you would take a little nap. or, But it was like a a distinct period of time that was like a grace period between the morning work and the afternoon work. It is incredible to think about the idea of art making as a primarily a time management strategy. Right. <laughs> like if it's going to be possible to be an artist, like that entails a very strict regimen of time management. Yeah. yeah right. And financial management. And those are the same often. Right. Right. You just have to be on it though. Cause I like, we'll go to studio and just space out 
Sure. Or I'll go to studio just to eat sometimes. But that feels but like a least, least Or you'll go to studio, studio just to answer it? emails, right? Yeah. But yeah. you're in there, and that's like, but I did it. Yeah. I've won. Yeah. I did the, I, I did got the my thing. body in the studio, yeah. but my mind is still outside. Or sometimes what happens to me now is like some the work that I'm working on, the physical, actual artwork is very slow. And I'll be like, God damn it, this is so slow. I could be sending off a bajillion emails right now right. or whatever and it takes me a while to like drop back into then that's the sort of rhythm time thing it's like if I'm hustling and at my jobs and teaching and all these things then I get to the studio and I have two hours to carve those hours first of all it's really hard for my brain to be like now you're in carving time mm-hmm. which is really slow and uh and then so there's that, and then also I know not that much happens in two hours. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, it's just this this calculation and calibration all the time. Do you feel like you were prepared for that at school? Anyone prepared you for that sort of thing? Of just being like, you need to get into the studio every I, single hour and just be working until you fall asleep. Yeah, there was that too, right. <laughs> for sure. Or like if you were seen outside of studio relaxing, people would be like... <laughs> What what's, do you, what's wrong with you? You're ready? You'd be like, yeah. Right. I'm right. Ready. Like if you aren't like strung Bleeding out. Bleeding out yeah. of your eyes. <laughs> totally. You want I a re- good artist. And I was like, I'm not subscribing to that. Yeah. I would get really, this is, I don't know how this is going to go over, but I would get really health hyper aware in like in grad school right before um, the end of like major critiques or my graduate exhibition. And I would like, get on a super strict diet and I would make sure I exercised and make sure I uh, slept and everyone else is like dying out there. They're like (laughs) strung out. They're drunk. They're like never sleeping. They're like splayed all over the studio floor. And I'd be like, I'm going to, I'm on a nine to five thing here because also in school, it's such a gift. Like you, that's, that's basically what you're doing. Like I had a part-time job, but like I could be nine to five at studio. Mm Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, the same artist that I worked for when I was a teenager, um, I I moved out of the country when I was a teenager to work to to try to well I moved to Spain like a kind of crazy person with some money I saved, um, and I had found an artist to work for, and I had a very traditional master apprentice relationship for a year, which I forget how it influenced me and continues to influence me, but. Even before college, I was I learned so much from her about how to be a practicing artist and about showing up at the studio every day, um, and making food and bringing food and feeding the cat and turning the heater on, which was a fire, um, and um, and that that Marisa like really taught me a lot of discipline about just the daily labor of what it takes right. um, to. To, to do that. So when I started college, I was kind of much more prepared in some ways um, for what it meant to make art, mm. um, I think, than college students. Mm-hmm. That sustained me a lot. I remember about being in, in grad school, and in some ways I don't think this is the best way to make art as you get older and develop uh, your processes, but like in school, you have to crank stuff out. Right. And making 16 millimeter films in school, I was on it. I was like, I got to go buy an axe. I got to call this person and make sure they're ready by two on Thursday. Like I could just like yeah. hammer it out. 
and crank them out and I try to remind myself that. It's so much harder now. It is, but I, I don't know, yeah, it's a constant, like, you gotta find the balance. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can listen to us every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Or, of course, find us anywhere where you get your pods. Everywhere that you get your podcasts, uh, you will find us there. And if you listen to the show and you like it, tell a friend, leave a rating or a review. Yeah, all that stuff helps us out. Or find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. Find us there. And now we'll get back to our conversation with Allie Peoples and Cara Levine. Um, Cara, when you were in Spain, is that where you learned you were doing carving with this artist? Or So when I was in Spain, I was working for an artist, a Spanish artist, who herself had um, a teacher who passed onto her these like hundreds years old Spanish Arabic luster glazes. And when I went, I had... I, I was going under the premises that I wanted to learn pottery or ceramics more deeply. So mm-hmm. I was uh, making these glazes for her and firing her kilns, but she also worked in plastics. So we did a lot of like pouring resin. And then also she taught me a little bit of stone carving and mm-hmm. gave me my first carving gloves and my first couple chisels. So yeah, I mm-hmm. did learn a little bit about how to um, hold tools mm-hmm. and use them. Because you have this whole side of your practice that is um, carving, but I know it to be in wood. Yeah, wood is a lot easier to carve than stone. stone yeah, <laughs> nice. But <laughs> I would like to actually, at some point, get back into or learn more, uh, f- like formidably, learn how to carve stone. But mm-hmm. yeah, I um, slowly, as like kind of a through line for the last fifteen years in my practice, I've been carving, and wood continues to be a material that. Um, I find I have access to and is really um, a joy to work with. And I I think I learned to carve wood on this epic um, trip that I used to take with my ex and another couple um, where we would go to this island of the Bahamas and that had been farmed for lumber and had all this old growth mahogany and pine. And we would go into into these old growth forests where they had many of the trees had fallen and we'd take a chainsaw and we'd just cut out mahogany and bring it to the beach and bring it to these sawhorses we had kind of set up and just carve all day, every day, um, like bowls and um, weird objects and woodcuts for prints um, and fish and eat and camp. And I really learned kind of how to, like what a good ribbon feels like when you're carving. Like what does it feel like when your tools are sharp? How do you sharpen your tools? How do you hold your tools? Um, how do you stand? Um, and all of those kinds of like methods, just like to understand the craft of it without having to, without the pressure of making something um, unique or an art object. As a non-carver, I totally understood what you meant when you said a good ribbon. Okay, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, so satisfying. It's so satisfying. And are you pushing the chisel or are you using a mallet on the chisel? Like, how are you making your cuts and what's the mm. angle of the cut? And But then when you were living in Oakland, you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started to work with artists with disabilities? Yeah, Um Definitely. I, when I was in graduate school, I had my first, I had an internship, a work study kind of program at a uh, studio called Nyad in Richmond. 
Um, and there I worked with artists with developmental disabilities and I was the ceramics teacher because clay was always my first material and my most kind of familial material, familiar material. And so I, I was a, well, actually at NIAD, I wasn't, I was a mixed media teacher, but then after grad school, I worked at Creative Growth Art Center for three years in Oakland. Um, and I was the ceramics teacher and they actually really, uh, taught me to unlearn basically everything I thought I knew about clay, um, which was really a expansive experience. Um, like you can fire anything, all these potters out there, like it has to be hollow and, um, you know, you just, it doesn't have to be hollow. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You just have to take your time and, um, and heat the kiln very, 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 very slowly and mm-hmm. carefully. But I remember you doing, and I haven't seen this in person, but you did like a blind contour carving of a pillow. Yes, yes. So, yeah, that was inspired by working with these artists. That's a, yeah, a good memory. Yeah. Um, so I was working at Creative Growth, and I had this really great artist that I worked with named David Parsons, who continues to be one of my favorite artists. And he is basically blind. Um, he can see a little bit if he brings something very, very close to his eyes, but it's sort of constantly moving, um, constantly moving vision. And I was really inspired by his method because he was really craft oriented, detail oriented, and, um, would try to make these kind of hyper realistic animal drawings and also clay objects that were animals like dogs and birds. And what would happen is it looked like the bird or the animal was kind of moving uh, because he would look at the picture and then go back to the sculpture that he was working on and look at the picture and go back to the sculpture and the sculpture would kind of evolve as his vision with it would. And it was a really touch-oriented object. And I was like, I want my hands to see the way that his hands see. Mm. And so I, I went on a residency in Colorado and um, we had this amazing sculpture uh, facility and I decided I was going to carve two objects. They were pillows out of wood. And I hadn't ever, I hadn't carved a wooden sculpture yet, um, ever. Oh, uh, I take that back. There was one in grad school. But anyway, um, so I was going to carve two objects. And they were going to be pillows. And I decided to make two blanks. They were the same blanks, just like on the bandsaw, roughing them out. And then I carved one by, with sight. Um, copying a pillow in the studio, you know, however laborious that was. And then I blindfolded myself. I actually sandblasted my safety glasses. Nice. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're so smart. You know, protect your eyes. I love that. Yeah, while sure. you're blinding yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I so I sandblasted my safety glasses. And then I also, while, while I did it, I was so distracted um, orally, like by sound. For sure. That I also had to cover my ears. So, and then I used the other, the first carved pillow as my guide and I would touch it with my hands and then I would move over to my new pillow and I would try to replicate those, those lines, those sort of veins and ripples in the fabric, um, blinded. And I was just curious, like, I wanted to like undermine my perfectionism as a maker and, um, and I wanted to really wanted to teach my hands to see because also I'm fascinating, fascinated by like perception and sensitivity and sensorial experience. And it's our hands like that really are our second eyes. Like 
babies and kids, they depend on their hands to see so much, um, to orient yourself in space, to um, f- catch yourself if you fall. Um, and we're like more and more out of touch with, with touch, but mm-hmm. that's another conversation. But um, for me, like, yeah, I, I wanted to replicate these, this thing blindfolded. And then it was such a challenge. I have this kind of personal rule that if I do something challenging once, it's kind of a fluke. So I have to do it twice. Um, so I made a second set um, later at home in my studio that were of floaties, like swimming floaties. You couldn't live with the first set? That was like I did it a once. Practice. It's it, not proof. It's, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I figured, yeah, I don't know. I have, don't you have weird rules that you live by? Like, sure. Yeah, like, I guess this is a good question for you, Allie, because you use, I mean, you do film, you do sculpture, you do uh, fabric stuff, you do sewing stuff, you do, mm-hmm. you do everything. So what is, what is your relationship to these, to, to the form of a piece, like to materials? Like, how do you choose and why do you, mm-hmm. why do you choose a thing that you choose? Uh, oftentimes I'm like putting the cart before the horse. It's super material based. Mm-hmm. It's a little, it's actually way different with, with the film. Um, I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of like references going on there. Like I'll get excited about a reference and then just move forward with the material. I feel like that's changing and like getting way more expansive now that I don't know. The, the the paintings are putting me in this whole different like mind space, which is good, I think. She's like, I learned I'm a killer painter. Ooh, <laughs> that's, lo- that's loaded. It's actually like kind of embarrassing. Like I have painter friends and I'm like, <laughs> paint, I'm painting. Whatever. Anyone can fucking paint. It's fine. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then the f- films, they're very material based, not only in... Um, getting to hold the actual film and the cameras of, as an apparatus and like an extension of the body, which I think you could pick up on. Um, but the props that I make in the film and it just camera moves that I do, I'm like, I want it to be very crude and obvious and I want you to know what those materials are. I want the smoke and mirrors to be really obvious. Yeah, it's like a broken fourth wall. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we should talk about, Cara, your project, This Is Not a Gun. Tell us about that project. Thank you. Um, yeah. So for the last three years, I've basically been immersed in a project in my studio that um, has jumped out of my studio into the community called This Is Not a Gun. And uh, it started with my carving, um, kind of carving practice. And it started in the winter of 2016 after Trump was elected and we were all in this kind of walking around like zombies phase. Um, But simultaneously, one thing that was happening more and more in the news is um, many, many uh, unarmed, innocent black men were being murdered by police. And I had been living in Oakland and had recently moved to Portland, Oregon at this time, but my community at home was really uh, in an uproar and I felt really powerless. And so this was sort of on my mind, but I saw a Harper's Magazine, um, Harper's Magazine Instagram feed piece or something that- Like a list. A list. They make the lists. Exactly. It was a list, a Harper's list. And it was called Trigger Warning, These Objects of 
all been mistaken as guns by police officers in shootings of unarmed civilians. And it had a list of 23 objects. They're very ubiquitous, um, set of keys, cell phone, wallet, um, sandwich, Bible, um, hand, hand, cane. Um, And I actually felt really angry at this, not just, of course, the first shock of like, oh my God, all these objects, but really like there was an error in the publishing. It felt like really thoughtless in some ways. It was missing all the relevant information. Who are these people? What are their names? Um, Where do they come from? What is their race? You know, and we can kind of intuit because we're culturally sensitive people, but we don't know. This information's not here. And it felt like clickbait and it felt like shock, this like shock oriented propaganda or something. So I wanted to spend more time with these objects and understand more thoroughly what was happening. So I'm trying to tell this story quickly because it's a long story. But um, so I started in my studio carving the objects that have been on the list out of wood. And in that process, I also have been going through the process of relearning, re-educating myself about the history of race in the United States um, through text and rhetoric, listening while I carved. And then very quickly, it was like, this is this this work is this is my devotional labor kind of for somebody else's loss but it's not my loss it's not my story and i really wanted it to have a greater be a part of a greater conversation um and so i started hosting these um ceramic based workshops in different community centers and art spaces um and i co-host with um different women all women of color who are invested in race equity work um, through their work, whether it's art or activism or healing work. And we make the work in clay, and then we hold a conversation about these things, race equity, cultural With, trauma. Excuse me, participants that come just through word of mouth and, like, promotion. Totally, yeah. public. And and often in the last few really uh, aiming towards working with teenagers. Um, that's my favorite audience to work with. Um, and often the teenagers will help lead the workshops and the conversation because they're having a different conversation than we are. Yeah, so this has kind of like grown into a project all on its own that has, um, I now have dozens of collaborators and I've worked in lots of different cities. Um, and I'm created a zine with an artist in Oakland named Lucasa Brantman, Verissimo, um, to try to extend this workshop template for other communities to host. And I will plug also in 2020, I'm super stoked, we have a book coming out about the project that has um, 38 con- different contributors. Each contributor is writing about their own experience with one of these objects. So for me, the, the multitude of these stories kind of undermines the idea that any of these objects could be seen as a threat. And of course, also, I've done all the research on all of the, the victims that are on this list um, and know their names and their stories. And all of that is shared information, something we talk about at the workshops. And it, it's hard to talk about this project quickly in some ways because it has to unpack in a group conversation. It takes time. And there's a lot of muddy conversation around race and whiteness and trauma um, that comes up. And it's it's worth spending the time with. It's really, it really needs a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And people should check that out online, right? Yeah, there's a yeah, website. Absolutely. This is not a gun.com. It has its own website. Everyone go there. And while we're talking about 
community engagement alley really quick in our time. Yeah. Plug that Echo Park Film Center and tell us about your involvement Ooh. in it. Well, Echo Park Film Center is an amazing place that is going on 18, 19 years. Yeah. I should yeah. know because they just had their anniversary. Um, but there are very many things. They're a classroom for little to no cost for uh, young people and older people. They rent equipment, Super 8, 16, video. They rent DVDs. They rent film prints, maybe books. Um, they have a small school bus that goes around to communities that are far away from Echo Park that would take someone like a long time to get to to, to use the resources there. Um, and they're also a micro cinema. Um, I'll say three nights a week, maybe even more. They have um, community-based um, video film screenings. Um, they're open to collaborating. You can rent the place. It's really insane the amount of stuff that they've done that they've done, and um, just the people that get involved with it. And they're really invested in like putting the tools of the moving image in other people's hands. So um, cool. I couldn't say enough great things. About yeah, them. everyone should go it's online amazing. and check them out. That's a, of course in the Echo Park neighborhood here in Los Angeles. Yes. And um, both you and we're not going to go this whole podcast without saying Mike Stoltz's name. So Mike we'll just Stoltz. say it. Very many, so many people uh, help out with that place. They've since moved to a co-op model. So there's about uh, 20 artists that help run that place now. Um, yeah, they're on Alvarado, just I'll say north of Sunset. And well, so one micro cinema thing that happens is Dickie Bato, who's an amazing force there, has been doing a screening series called the New Work Salons. And they started by just him casually wanting to see his friend's work because we're all making work all the time, but it's not often curated into a screening around town. So he uh, as he he keeps in touch with everyone and just knows that when we finished a piece that we're welcome to show it in these screenings called New Work Salons. They're not curated, which is like refreshing, and there's no Q&A, which is also refreshing. You you are encouraged to talk about it, yeah. Um, But yeah, you're not held prisoner at the end of the the screening. Um, So yeah, it's always great. I'm always thankful to show my new work there. But So I just finished a new uh, film it's five and a half minutes long, and that will show in the February New Work Salon on the 22nd. Yeah. Everybody are, my, are my ankles in it? Ooh, your ankles and your hands. <gasps> really? Yes. Yes. Made All right. the cut. <laughs> yes. You finally made it. I've you never got, been in one. You finally made it. That's oh, you're great. in. Well, Allie, Cara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 82 of The People on Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find all of our past episodes. That's 81 plus this one, 82 episodes. All of our past episodes at insertblancpress.net by clicking the people at the top of the page. Or anywhere else you get your podcast. Of course, we're there. Search for the People Radio. All the You know, go to the Instagram, the underscore people underscore radio. All the people, all the places. Our interstitial music is, as always, Ock Fifth by by Lewis Keller. Keller. Yep. Lewis, thank you again so much for that. And we're going to go out with the latest from a friend of the show, Nick Flessa. Uh, it's a single that came out last month under the name Dayton Swim Club, and that's inspired by a cult early internet video of the same name. The project stems from Nick Flessa Band, but it's more collaborative this round, and it features Mario Luna on guitar. I hope I get everyone's name right. Jessica Perelman. 
Jessica, I hope that's right, on drums. Uh, Kirsten Blad of the band Leggy on bass. And Dominique Madelson. Dominique, I apologize if I fucked that up. Uh, on backing vocals and keys. And the name of the song is Rage All Night. And I know 